morning. Um, we still just kind of push all the way to the back, don't we? Look at all these wonderful seats in the front. You know, I want to ask you to raise your hand. This was at one point where the pulpit was back there. This was the sanctuary where people worshipped. And I was thinking about, as we were singing, of all the decisions that have been made in this room at one point um, in the history of this church. I think it was back in the 70s and 80s and, and somewhere in that time. If you were in this spot worshiping years ago, raise your hand, would you? Wow. Isn't that something? Well, we just want to thank you so much for your faithfulness and for your courage to um, step out in faith and build that facility. And, and together, I thank all of you as we're stepping out in faith again renovating that facility and as you can see messing up our parking lot and the whole side of the building over there to put this multi-use room together if you haven't been a part of that campaign and would like to help and, and maybe come along at some point in the last number of months we would love for you to help us um, reach that goal um, in any way that you can through prayer and through any kind of financial commitments um, I just want to share with you a few things if you can see there's communication cards and that's what we call them it's an opportunity for you to communicate if you would, um, any prayer requests, praises, or, or, or anything that we can do as a church to help you. Um, there will be prayer again after the service. It might be a little harder to get up here, but hopefully there will be some people up here to pray with you if you would like prayer. We're making a quick changeover, so I do have to say, I'll say this now so don't forget, please leave your song sheets on these chairs when you leave so that the ushers can pick them up and use them again for the next hour. Um, but we only have a half hour in between, so if you would, kind of move out and, and talk with people out there and we'll start opening up this area because you know we'll get out right at 9.30 because I'm so timely. Um, and then, uh, is, well, uh, we will be here again next week. I'm really excited because next week, um, there's gonna be kind of a, this last couple chapters, uh, George Kenworthy and our high school pastor, um, Becca Elgard are going to be up here sharing and telling some personal stories that relate to this passage. So please make it a point to be there. And then that following week of August 13th, we're at the Hilde Center. And if you need directions, they're at the, uh, you can actually get directions, I think, out in some of these um, different uh, places where we have some guest service help. So please uh, look at that, if you would, um, in those Welcome Center areas. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward, and we're going to take the offering. One thing I should say is normally the next Sunday is the first Sunday of the month, and, and we do this because we're told to remember the Lord's death and to take communion on a regular basis. There's no law on how often you do it. We have chosen, because of the time limits and everything else, we will not be doing communion next Sunday, just so you're aware of that. Um, and we're thinking about, depending on how things go, um, just watch for the next time we do it in our regular um, commitment to observe the Lord's death. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these gifts and for these offerings. I thank you for the servants who, um, who, who are taking this. God, we are so grateful you have placed within this body so many servants who have done good things. Thank you also, God, as we remember last Wednesday night, um, just a number of people who stood forward and shared their story of coming to faith in you and finding salvation in you. And at that baptism, we are so grateful, God, for these new commitments of people who are following you. 
We pray, um, be with them, strengthen them in the name of Jesus. Amen. Whenever I have to use a handheld mic, I feel like one of my wings is clipped. Um, An attendee from our church just a a week or so ago uh, sent this story and said that I could share it. May 4th was sunny and bright. Though when one is in a significant life transition, it can appear very gray and somber. As a person of faith and surrounded by a loving body of Christ that our church consistently is, reaching out for prayer should be clearly an easy ask. At least it should be. In my battle with pride, the overwhelming desire to self-preserve, self-sustain, self-advance is ever-present. It was with this mindset that I drove south on 101 approaching our church. Drive-through prayer. Remember that? Back on May 4th, we had that day of prayer and we had the drive-through prayer. Drive-through prayer, this person writes, was simply a right blinker and a turn of the steering wheel away. I could sense the Holy Spirit nudging me, knew the simplicity of the decision that I needed to make. Clearly, prayer with other believers was needed as I was driving to an interview. And then, I'm past the church, nearing Gleason Lake, and I'm thinking, seriously, you're not going to stop. Ever had those thoughts? <clears throat> Continue to write, pride, arrogance, plain silliness, these tr- traits almost won. But in a moment that was like a lightning bolt, the conviction of the Holy Spirit struck. Momentum to continue driving away evaporated and I enthusiastically turned the car around and as I drove into our church parking lot, welcoming and loving smiles greeted me. And as we stood in the parking lot, arms around each other in support of an uplifting circle, transparency and vulnerability and tears replaced my pride as we lifted prayers up to God. But pride, like a boomerang, wants to return. And the daily battle continues. Though with Christ and the indwelling spirit, we continue to lift up his goals and desires and glorify him in our thoughts, words, and actions. Isn't that true? It is so. Just think how often pride keeps us from so many good things that God wants. Last week we were talking about this and we're seeing this whole series here in in especially last message pride and what it caused Haman to do it actually caused his fall whereas in Mordecai who is in a humble place was beginning to be lifted up because we said this verse last week and hopefully you still remember God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble let's say it again I know we don't have a screen but God opposes the proud which shows favor to the humble. Said three times in Scripture, Proverbs, First Peter, James, and because when God wants to emphasize something, he says it a number of times, the very same words. So when we left Haman last week, he was still falling. He hadn't actually hit bottom yet. Okay? So he's still on that descent down. He comes into the king hoping to be honored, and he's thinking, because the king asked him, who should I honor this loyal subject of mine who who deserves such a something great. And he's thinking, oh, he must be speaking of me. So he suggests this incredibly great honor for this noteworthy and loyal subject. 
And he says, let's have that person ride around town dressed in the king's royal garb on the king's royal horse while a person and he takes the lead and honors this person by shouting out, this is what the king does for those he honors. Bow, show this man respect. Now we come to chapter 7 and 8. I mean, Haman is quickly descending as he's walking through the streets, completely humiliated. And yet he hasn't fallen and hit bottom yet, but he's about to, and he's about to hit it hard in chapter 7 and 8. And all of this is the operation of God's justice. As we've looked at this story, you see throughout it the sovereignty of God. We talk about the sovereignty of God, and God is sovereignly working in ways that we don't see him. He works in so many ways in our life, and we just don't even see it. Someday we will. But now we begin to see the sovereign God is also a God of justice. That's kind of what turns here as we turn the page to this next chapter. God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble because this God of ours is just and good. He's impartial and fair. He's a judge like no other. Just as God is nothing like King Xerxes, who could care less about his subjects, we see this contrast of God who is so in love with his people that he cares for them even when they don't even know what he's doing. But in the same way, just like we see so often injustice, we find that the the judicial system of God is completely just and fair. Nothing like it. Even though we have a great judicial system, probably in history, And throughout the world, our judicial system is one of the best, but it's still incredibly flawed, right? See it all the time. That's what you see in the news all the time. People upset because they have been given a wrong deal. No matter what side of the line you may fall on, people are feeling like this isn't fair or just. So let's pick up again where we left off. Chapter 7, verse 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and they were there drinking wine on the second day. And the king asked again, Queen Esther, this is the petition he's been asking her. She's been putting it off with banquets. What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Herodotus, the historian, which has um, a lot of history that parallels us, that people look at, um, talks about the Persian custom. And in the Persian custom, they would linger over the dessert and drink the wine after the meal, in a sense, after the meal, they'd move to the way to your subjects. It would be kind of like um, dinner's over, small talk is over, now let's get down to business. Sometimes that happens even in business lunches. You kind of, a little bit, now let's talk about it. Well, then Queen Esther, we read in verse 3, answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold to be as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Isn't that interesting? I didn't didn't mean to disturb you. It's again this kind of, you get this contrast of God who says, bring your prayers to me. When you feel disturbed, feel free to disturb me. I don't care when you do. But here she says, you know, if we were just sold as slaves as a people, I wouldn't, it wouldn't just, I wouldn't even take the, the moment to disturb you, but this is far worse. So verse five, King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, and, and the Hebrew here is interesting because it's almost a staccato, like, 
who, 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 who is he? Where is he? How, how dare he? Is the feel that you get. Who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Can you imagine him listening to her and all of a sudden hearing that he, here, his wife, his queen, his life is being threatened? And you kind of go, how could he not be aware of it? Um, he was quite a narcissistic personality. He didn't probably honestly even know what the edict was that he sent out. That's how untouched he was by what was going on in his kingdom. And, and you read in chapter 3 that Haman only comes to the king and he says a certain people who is found in every province never mentions who it is. And Esther has been keeping her nationality quiet, so he has no idea. He's not aware of the full context of the edict, and he's fully not aware of the fact that she would be one of the persons who is killed according to it. So he's enraged, and, and, and the Hebrew says, who dares to fill his heart to do this? Verse 6, Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman, it's really, as you look back, as Haman is um, on his rise, he's talking about a certain people, and seven times he says, Mordecai, that chew. You know, you can almost see him spit as he says it. Seven times. Which I think is interesting, because what he's trying to do is, he, he says it in such a way, because it's both not only a racial, but it's also a religious hatred. He hates not only the people who at one point, when they were warring against each other, um, Almost got wiped out, but he also hates the God of these people. And yet, when Esther says who he is, just says an adversary, an enemy, and merely calls him by his expressed character, this vile Haman. Doesn't refer to the race. He's the man who's plotting my death and my people's demise. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Can you, you can imagine, they're around at the banquet, and, and in those days, they weren't sitting in chairs. They actually had, for, for royalty, instead of sitting on the floor like often you would, and you'd have this small table, and I would do it, but I'm not on a platform, so you can't see me. I've done it before. Um, when Jesus was with his disciples, and they were having the last meal, you know that one picture where they all in chairs and looking towards the camera? Um, they weren't really. They were around a table that was small and they were lying on the ground. So in this case, in kings and queens, they would lie on a, a kind of couch, so they were, which was only just a few inches off the ground because you didn't want to be on the ground. And so they're, they're lying around this table eating and you see Haman, his eyes must just get huge. He doesn't know that Esther was going to be affected by this. He's terrified. Verse 7, then the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. I'm sure he's in his mind trying to figure out what's going on. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate. Remember, he was, Herodotus tells us um, in history, he was known as a rageful person. He would act on impulse, and so he knew that the king had already said, this guy's gone. He had already decided his fate. So Haman stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And, and you see this continual change, how the mighty have fallen, and he is now the one who is terrified, frightened that he will not live. The cards are completely turned. God is opposing the proud, and he's beginning to lift up the humble. His justice is at work. 
Haman knows his fate is sealed, so he remains in the room to beg Esther for his life. And wouldn't you know it, coincidence or maybe providence, just as luck might have it, verse 8 says, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. He trips, probably on the carpeting, stumbles right into her lap, Verse 8 continues, the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? One of the Targums, which is a Jewish commentary written before the time of Christ, so it's predating Christ. One of the the commentators in the Targums says that the angel Gabriel pushed Haman as the king entered the room. I don't think he pushed him as much as, you know how you kind of sit there, here's an angel, you don't see him, and, and, and Haman's just begging, and he's walking around begging, and he's turning, and he's going to come over to Esther, and just as he's coming, he sticks his foot out. <laughs> and as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. They, you know how you see like a person who want to put their jacket over their head when they're getting into a police car, something like that, this sense of shame? That's kind of what it is. It's not only the sense of shame when they would cover the head. It was kind of like, this guy's a goner. He will not live, nor will he see life again. And, and the eunuchs came running in at the, at, the, at the very words that the king would say, because they knew no one messes with the king's queen. No one messes with the king's harem. That's why they were all eunuchs. And in this case, when they would hear that, they would be in like that. Then Harbona... Now, my wife has a long time been telling me that you should do a name of the popular baby names of, of, of Babylon. I don't know anybody know the popular ones today for kids, like for boys. Number, Raise your hand if you have someone or you know someone who's named their kid. For, for, for Let's start with girls. Girls, number three is Ava. Okay. Number two, Olivia. And, and the number one popular name for girls today is Emma. For boys, number three, Lucas. Number two, Noah. And the number one baby name for a boy is Whitaker. No, I'm just kidding. That's my that's my grandson. I do have pictures, but we don't have the slides to show them, so I, I won't. Uh, no, the number one name, catch it, is Liam. Well, the number one name in Babylon for a, a baby boy was Harbona. I'm just kidding. I don't really know. Anyway, um... One of the eunuchs attending the king said a pole reaching to a height of about 75 feet stands by Haman's house. So here's the eunuch, Carbona, coming in going, you know, if you look out the window, you can see this big pole that Haman himself put there. He had set it up for Mordecai who spoke up to help the king. Isn't that interesting? It's almost kind of like he's, he's saying, you remember that guy that you said you needed to do something good for? He's the guy who is going to be put up in the pole by Haman, who we just let out with his head in a bag. Then the king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. It's the same word in the Hebrew of, of like when the, the flood, when the water subsided. His, his rage comes up like this, and then it starts to subside. And I've mentioned before, this idea of execution by impaling um, was just supposed to be a very humiliating and yet very painful punishing form of death. It wasn't what we kind of think of the, the westerns where the guy is put on a, and hung. It's not that at all. 
In fact, it was the earliest form of crucifixion that was begun by the Persians but perfected by the Romans. And it's what actually Jesus himself died in the sense that he was impaled. In that sense, he was crucified. And it was... It was done, um, both Herodotus tells us that when King Darius invaded Babylon, when they were over um, taking the country of Babylon, um, in one of their inscriptions, it says he impaled 3,000 Babylonians. And the purpose of that was to kind of hold up before people and say, do what this guy did and we'll do this to you. It was a form of punishment that was meant to keep people from doing anything against the king and the government. So chapter 8, that day, same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Both Herodotus and then Josephus in his historical work called the Antiquities comment that the Persian law gave the state the power to confiscate property of someone who has been called or, or condemned as a criminal and they could give it to whoever they willed or wished and often would give it to the person who was being harmed. So the king, upon finding Mordecai's relationship to Esther, invites Mordecai into his presence and he gives him the signet ring, which was in a sense like giving the king's corporate credit card. And by doing so, he then makes him the prime minister second in command. And so now you see Mordecai taking Haman's place and the justice of God being worked out. And along with that, Mordecai is given all of Haman's wealth and his title and his power. And you see this complete reversal of the curse that Haman put on Mordecai and the people being completely reversed and God bringing blessing into his life. And it's that question that we ask, where's God when, when wrong is done? This continues to say he's at work. He's, he's at work in your life. You may not see it, but be patient. There's a day when God will reverse what has been cursed. He will turn your sorrow to joy. He will turn the ashes into garments of praise. So verse 3, Esther again pleaded with the king, failing, falling at his feet and weeping, and she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And then the king extended the golden scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. So once again, with great emotion, Esther's on her knees before the king, asking the king to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, which the Hebrew word actually translated for the word to put to an end, actually are the words to cause to pass over. Remember the illusions always going back to Joseph and to the people of Egypt um, and, and their stay in Egypt? So he's almost, she's saying, would you cause to pass over in some way this edict so that it would pass over and they would not feel the consequences of this curse. And Esther is pleading that the king would somehow pass over the law, this edict which had been issued, in which we have been told again and again the law of the Medan Persians were irrevocable. You, once it was stated by the king, once he had put his signet ring to it, he could not just say, repeal that law. And so again, you see the king granting her favor. He extends the golden scepter a second time, and he encourages to make her request. Now, look at verse 5 because it is this incredible um, 
buildup because she knows the king has given the ring and has approved the edict that would kill all the Jews. So she's got to say it in such a way that she's not impugning him in any way, but it all falls on Haman. So she says, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, and if he thinks it's the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me. Okay, what do you want? No. Um, let an order be written overruling, that overpasses in sense the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamathada, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in the king's, all the king's provinces. For I can, for how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Which is very close in the Hebrew to what exactly is said in the same story in Joseph. Just again, another parallel. And although the king approved the edict, Esther's careful again to make certain that she doesn't kind of point the blame at him. Verse 7, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on a pole he set up. He's kind of reminding them, I'm, you know, I've already rewarded both Haman's estate and Haman's death to you guys. But he continues on knowing he can't revoke it. So he says this. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as he seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Xerxes gives them, in a sense, a blank check. Write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, and then he says, as it seems best to you, figure it out, guys. And Xerxes, since he can't revoke it, tells him to figure it out, neutralize it, in a sense, he says, and I'll sign it. So verse 9, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the month of Sivan, and they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps and governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, which is the upper Nile region. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language, Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. That was the Pony Express system that if you go to the the postal service in New York, there's some of the stuff um, that's on the walls with the inscriptions goes all the way back to some of the things that were said about the Persian reign. Anyway, they're summoned. They... Um, just two months and ten days after Haman had issued this edict, they've reversed it. Verse 11, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. Which is really interesting because when you go to the next couple chapters, they'll make a point of the fact that what they didn't do was plunder their enemy and their property. That that day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the province of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month of the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as the law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves and on their enemies. Now, verse 14, if you look at verse um, chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, and even into chapter 9, there is a almost some word-for-word parallels to what was said in chapter 3. For instance, the phrases in, in chapter 3 verse, um, of, of chapter, uh, of verse 14 
says the couriers went out spurred on by the king's command and edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. But if you look at verse 15 of chapter 3, it says spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out with the edict that was issued in the citadel of Susa. So each decrees are sent out and the wording is, is almost parallel. But there's one significant difference when we come to this telling of the story. The first time we see the response is that Mordecai tears his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and when the edict was heard in the city, it says that they all went out weeping loudly and bitterly. But this time, notice the response of Mordecai. It's just the opposite. Verse 15. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, not ashes and sackcloth, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa, instead of being bewildered and, and, and the Jews who were wailing and mourning, held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. There is this complete and exact reversal. And what he does in the text, if you could read it, is he kind of uses the very same language in order to show you what was once then coming out as a curse is now completely reversed. The justice of God is completely at work. The curse in the edict of chapter 3, verses 15 through 4, 3 is reversed with the second edict in chapter 8. From sackcloth to ashes to royal robes and a gold crown, from weeping and wailing to happiness and joy, from feasting and fear from fasting and fear to feasting and celebration. And then it concludes, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Which is very similar to what you read sometimes in Acts. It says that the fear of God, the presence of God was so rich and alive that people turned to God. The tables had turned so completely that it's now dangerous not to be a Jew. And the persecution that was mounting throughout the world quickly subsided. And God's people were given favor everywhere throughout the then-known kingdom. And Jews were free to follow God. And many became Jews because of the God they saw. And I think that's so interesting because what was mounting and happening over years in a moment turns. And so often in history we can see where where things are going astray and the people of God are crying out and they've been crying out and they've been praying and all of a sudden God comes with a wind of his spirit and revives things and turns things around. He sometimes does that in people's hearts and lives in their own situation. So I'm going to share with you a couple things about justice and we only have a few minutes. The first is this. The world expects justice. Think about it. We expect justice. In fact, the world can't run without it. If you read throughout this whole book, you're kind of going, boy, we want justice. I can't believe this Haman guy. He needs his due. He needs to be taken care of. Um, We all look at it that way. You think about it. um, uh, The world doesn't run without justice. It doesn't run well. We all know it. If you ever go to like a baseball game, anybody, you know, go and you watch your little leaguer play or you watch your little kid play baseball. Um, If if they're playing and, and your son's up to bat, and, or your daughter, and, and the pitcher pitches the ball, and it's, it's a, it's a three-two count, and the game is really close, and the ball comes, and it bounces in front of the plate, and bounces wide, and the umpire goes, strike three! Are people just going, ah, oh, that's funny. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how upset you can be about such a little thing as a strike not being called? And then you just think about the things in our world today. 
When you find that someone who has actually, in cold-blooded, first-degree murder of five teenage girls, and they only get two years in parole. What, what goes on in your heart? There's this visceral response that says, where in the world is justice? So the world expects justice. You expect justice. Usually we do, unless it's about us. <laughs> right? But justice is about fairness. Not only are we wired for justice and expected, we also understand that the, the justice is about fairness. And so when you go into the Old Testament, there was a law that was written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the reason for this um, justice was because what was happening was, one, it was to allow for there to be justice. You do this, then this person gets this, so that there's a sense of some sense of resolve, which we know it never fully does. But what was happening was people weren't just taking an eye. They were saying, you know, you took my eye and that did this. And out of anger, they would go and they take an eye and a hand. So they began to put some limits on justice. Because justice is about fairness. We're to measure justice out fairly. And so the commentator Goldman writes that Haman's fate is an example of measure-for-measure justice. As an act of poetic justice, Haman lost his life on the very gallows that he had anticipated would bring him such joy at Mordecai's execution. You see this complete justice of fairness. Which is, you know, you want people to feel the consequences of their actions, but it needs to be appropriate to what has been done. Parents, that's an important lesson. It's about fairness. It's about figuring out what's the right response to help them understand what they've done so that they won't do it again. It's not to crush or break their spirit. But what about when life isn't fair? When God hears or heals others and you're living in a place where it isn't fair. I was um, emailed this devotional post, and it was by a lady named Trisha Lott Williford, who just honestly shares her own struggles that were brought on by the loss of her husband. And she so honestly writes this. She says, I have a really hard time with stories of miraculous healing. It's not because I don't believe it that it's happened to that person. It's not that I don't believe it's possible, and it's not because I don't believe God can and does heal when he wants to. It's just that it hasn't happened in my life. And when God gives to other people in a way he hasn't given to you, it's easy to feel left out, and it's hard to want to hear how good he has been to other people. And when miracles are happening around me, sometimes the sovereignty card is a hard one to hold. You ever had that? It's hard to keep your confidence when you feel overlooked. Perhaps you're in that place right now. Miracles are happening around you. You're waiting for God to be fair and just. And some people claim that strong faith is defined by throwing our energies into begging God for a miracle and that will take away our suffering and then believing without doubting that he'll do it. But faith is not measured by our ability to manipulate God to get what we want I love this line. She says, it is measured by our willingness to submit to what he wants. And the truth is, there's no formula we can count on for when Jesus says yes and when he says no. That's the catch with sovereignty. He gets to decide yes, no, if, when, and how. And we can't figure out what he'll decide. And we can't base our confidence on his favor, though we can base our confidence on his faithfulness. He will be just. He will be fair. There is a day when he will make things right. 
there is your Mordecai and Esther day. She says if our hope is centered in this life and what we have while we're here, then we'll be forever disappointed. But if we hope for what we do not have, if we believe God is for us, then we wait patiently for what he's promised, and our ability to endure hardship is almost limitless if we have a confidence in his faithfulness. So what are you struggling with, God, in your life? In what circumstances do you need to hear God say to you, do not be afraid, trust me? It might begin with you simply confessing that you don't trust him. What? You kind of go, what? Today, start the discipline of being honest with God. Write it down. Draw it. Sing it. Just promise to be honest. Saying to God, Lord, I don't trust you, but I want to, is the beginning of hope when the miracle isn't yours. This is the root of confidence, even when God doesn't say yes. It's that honesty that says, God, show me where you're at. And he will say, I am right here with you. There is a day where God will make all things right because he's fair. And justice demands payment. You will reap what you sow. And here's the the big lesson here. Someday justice will be exacted on all. Know this, God is just. When wrong is done, God acts justly. And someday every person everywhere who has been created by him will stand before God and give an account of their life. And we all want justice, right? The world works that way. And someday the Bible says it will be meted out. I was watching uh, the TV. I wasn't really watching. I was getting ready, and I heard this TV story come on. Some of you may have heard it where there were these two dogs that were shot by a policeman. And they didn't die, but they've been, you know, major complications. And they were all upset. They were trying to figure out what actually happened, but one of the good things was that they had a videotape, the body camera was on, but the problem was the camera for the first 20 seconds had no sound. And the issue was, did the dog growl and was the dog threatening or not? And they couldn't determine that because they couldn't see it. But guess what? When it comes to our lives before God, the sound will always be on, the camera's always working, He sees everything, and that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. Because we're told in his word this very truth. Just as you see in this Esther that there's this edict that went out that was irrevocable, there is an edict that God says that goes out to every person, every person in this room. There's an edict that points to this truth. And the edict of justice says, for the wages of sin is death, and God will not repeal that law. Sin must be punished, and its consequence is death. And the Word of God also says with this edict in in Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That means every person who lives today is under this first edict. Everywhere. No exception. So there needed to be another edict. And God, in his wisdom, says to his son, Jesus, go ahead and write another edict. And Jesus says, here's what I'll do. I will go down and die that death and take the consequences of their sin, which is death eternally, for anyone who will accept and put themselves by faith and humility into that second edict. It says in in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. 
having canceled the written code, the first edict that stood opposed to you. Isn't that interesting how that parallels? He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Not only someday will every one of us stand under the first edict, but everybody here has the opportunity to stand in the second edict, the forgiveness and grace of God, where he cancels the first one and allows you by faith, not by your goodness, but by trust in him to receive his life forever. I'm going to have us pray, have the team come forward. And as I do that, I would ask you um, to stand with me in prayer. And I just want to give an opportunity, if you would just kind of for a moment hold the chair, have your head bowed for a second, and um, I just will give an opportunity. If you know your sin and your guilt and your shame, and you would like to receive the life and forgiveness that comes through God, the second edict, and you've never, ever committed your heart to him and opened your heart to him fully and said, forgive me, begin to live in me and run my life. If, you've, if you'd like to do that with heads bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just put your hand in the air if you would like to receive Christ. Yes. Just yes, yes. Just tell him, Jesus, forgive me. I open my heart to you. If you've made that commitment, I'd love to talk to you at some point this week. Father, we come before you, and we, we are going to sing this last song in praise to you. We thank you for your love for us, for your sovereignty and justice. But there's another thing. You have promised grace and goodness. So, God, may we, in the same way you have given us grace, go out now and show that to others in the name of Jesus. Amen.